chapter 7, 1 through 8. Mark chapter 7, 1 through 8. And I'm going to read and then we'll, we'll look at this. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And so where we are in this is, you've remembered, so, so last week we looked at Christ walking on the sea. Before that, he's Christ feeding the 5,000, feeding the multitude. And so this is, a, this is quite a turn from all of that. You've seen Christ's actions, you've seen him do works, but now he's back into the dialogue. And um, not only is he back... In the dialogue, but if you look at who he's dialoguing with, notice verse 1, it says the Pharisees and some of the scribes. When was the last time we've seen Christ dialoguing with Pharisees and scribes? And not only Pharisees and scribes, but look where they come from. The end of verse 1 says they came from Jerusalem. This is an official delegate or official delegation come to Christ to, to, to trick him, to, stump, to make him stumble. The last time Christ interacted with these guys, they told Christ that you have a demon in you. You're a Beelzebul. And Christ told them, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which happens to be the only unforgivable sin. And so these guys have already clashed before. And and so here they're back on the scene. And you notice what it says. It says they gathered around him. It doesn't say they just came came and they they talked to him face to face. When somebody gathers around you, you know what it it reminds me of is Psalm 2. If you go to Psalm 2, look at Psalm 2 verse 2. It talks about... I mean, this is perfect because what you have here says, uh, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. They're scheming, they're plotting, they're trying to, what are they trying to do? Against the Lord and against His anointed. And here you have the Lord's anointed and they're scheming, they're, they're plotting, and, and they're trying to bring Him down. And we've seen this already. That's what's going on here. Here's what's going to happen though. Okay, here in, in this section, by the way, so we're looking at verse 1 through 8 today. This section is going to take up 23 verses. So the next two weeks, God willing, after today we'll be looking at this. But here's what's going on here. The, the problem that is going on here is purity. What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be set apart? What's it mean to to not be common? And and that's that's the problem that we're having right now between Christ and, and the Pharisees and the scribes. So for instance, Israel from even the Old Testament. In the Torah, in the Old Testament, the emphasis on the people of God is be holy for I am holy. And you see 2 Peter. Peter's going to do the same thing. He's going to tell us the same thing as God's people today. Because we're part of the same church. As God's people today, we're still called to be holy because Christ is holy. But what does it mean to be holy? That's, the, that's where the confusion's coming. And that's where the, the atmosphere is going to be charged over that question. It's going to be a tense, it's already, it's a tense atmosphere because they're, they're operating under two different definitions of what it means to be pure, holy, clean, etc. Also, Israel is defined by their Torah, by the law. 
That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all, right? Torah, just the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. We still look at that. We still use that. Usually we, we, we read from it, right? That's not a bad thing. The problem, though, is this. The problem is, how do you interpret it? Who gets to interpret it? And not only that, what happens when the desire for holiness, which is good, goes beyond God's word, which is bad? You never want to go beyond God's word. And so that's where we are. So these Pharisees, these scribes, they come in, they hem him in, they hem him in, hem him in, that he's hemmed in, he's hemmed in. That's what you have in verse one. He's hemmed in. Verse two says this though. Look what it says. Here's the accusation. They had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is unwashed with unwashed hands. Ask yourself this, okay? In the Old Testament, do you recall seeing anywhere in the Old Testament where it says that you have to wash your hands before you eat? This is not some kind of hygiene thing. It's not like the Pharisees and scribes are are saying, Jesus, your disciples are going to get real sick because they don't wash their hands and they're spreading germs and and they need a wash. It's not like that. It's not the the COVID Nazis coming after, after Christ here. These guys are sincerely saying, this is beyond that. This has to do with the law. This has to do with what is, what, is, what is clean and unclean. What is holy and what is not holy. And for the Pharisees and the scribes, they see this as a salvific issue. You are saved by whether or not you're holy. And so when they come to Christ, look what's going on. Here's the thing. Okay, in the Old Testament, back to my question. Do you see that anywhere? Never for the people. But you do see it for the priests. And the way that this, this tradition started... And we're going to look, there's, uh, the tr- word tradition is going to come up a lot today. Tradition is not always bad. You know, we all have Thanksgiving traditions or whatever. These traditions in our family, that's not, that's not a bad thing. But traditions can be bad. And we're going to look at that. But here's what's going on, okay? So the, 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 the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jews, they would see the priests, and God commanded the priests to wash their hands only before they brought sacrifices to God, offerings to God. And the idea there is, is that because the, the, the offering itself has to be unblemished, has to be untainted. And so the hands have to be unblemished, untainted. But then the people see this and they, with noble intentions, I do, I do think they have noble intentions when they begin. They look at this and they say, listen, if the priests are doing this, the priests are doing this because it... it, it it, it keeps, you know, it keeps them holy. It keeps the sacrifice holy. It keeps what they're, what they're eating holy. Well, maybe we should do it too, right? Because we want to be holy. We want to have holy life. We want to have lives that are sanctified, lives set apart. And so what do they do? They start saying, hey, we're going to do this too. It's not just for the priests anymore now. It's for the people. It's not just something, hey, you, you, this is something that we're doing. You know how it starts. It's probably like a group of people doing it. But then before you know it, they're like, hey, now, now you ha- everybody has to do it now. And this, is, this becomes oral. Now, you've heard of the oral law, the oral traditions that are passed down in the Mishnah and the Talmud. So, so for the Jewish people, you, you don't just have the Old Testament scriptures. You have the oral law, which is the Mishnah and the Talmud. And somewhere around the time, so you remember Israel is, is exiled by Babylon. Babylon comes in and wipes them out and they're exiled. And so when they come back, that's where you get the Pharisees. And that's where you start getting the Mishnah, the Talmud, and these oral laws start become, they become elevated to the place where they are now Scripture. You have God's law, but now you also have these things right next to it. And that's what's going on here. 
So they're looking at Christ's disciples and they're saying, these guys are unclean because they don't wash their hands. What's up with this? Jesus, you claim to be, you claim to be from God. You claim to be the Messiah or some people are claiming that. You claim to be this and that. We see you doing these things, but there's no way you are that because you clearly don't revere God. Clearly. Because look how you act. Remember, we've seen this accusation already with Christ with the Sabbath, with, with him even healing a, a leper, healing the demoniac surrounded by tombs. For a Jew, you never go among tombs because that would make you unclean. Christ walks right in, boom, heals. That's right. So you're seeing this already. The accusation has already been brought up. But here is, there's, a, there's quite a few things that are different this time around. But here's, here's, here's jo, uh, Mark. Mark says in verse 3 and 4, look what he does. For the kindness of us Gentiles, he explains the rituals of the Jews. He says, hey, this, these are the customs. And we see here that Mark, this is like an assertion from Mark, a commentary from Mark, because um, he's writing it to Roman Christians, Gentile Christians. So verse 3 says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. And wash their hands there means something like with the fist. That's a first order washing. That's if, if you're, you, know, you haven't been contaminated by, by the filthy Gentiles, but you still need a wash. And so you wash with the fist. It's just like a superficial washing, but it still does the job. And no, no one really knows what with the fist means. Um, they think, you know, it has something to do with, with, with maybe just, just immersing your hand in the water or let, letting the water pour over your fist. Something very, uh, you know, light, I guess. But here's the second washing. Look, um, verse 4. And when they come from, you notice where they come from. When they come from the marketplace, the agora. They do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. The word there would be something more like immersion. You, if you come into contact, if you go to the market to get meat, to get food, whatever you're doing there, when you come back, you have to fully immerse yourself in water. Otherwise, you stay unclean. That's a second order kind of filthiness that you have to wash off. What's really neat here. And this, so, so look at chapter 6. Look at verse 53. I told you we're going to look at this, but we didn't read it yet. Look at verse 53. Look at this connection here. Look at what Christ does right before these Pharisees and scribes come up. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized them and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Now look at this. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside... They were laying the sick in the agora, the marketplaces, the exact same word that you see over here Mark used in chapter 7. What does it say? Christ is in the marketplace, and not only is he in the marketplace, look what he's doing. They're imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touch it were being cured. He's interacting with them on a very personal level. He's, there's no doubt he's coming into contact with them physically. He's touching them. They're touching him. He's in the marketplace. He's, he's unclean. This man is stained. He's been, he's been not just talking and in, in buying and selling with Gentiles. He is, he's in the mix with Gentiles. And so that's where that second order of cleansing should come. So they, these, these disciples should not just be putting their hand in the water. They need to fully immerse themselves in water. But Christ is like, what? Why would we do that? Where are you gonna, show, me in the, show me in God's word where you have to do that. That's what he's going to say. Look at verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him. Because they're, they're perplexed. You know, again, they're, they're, they're like, wait a minute. Why do your disciples not walk according to the, now notice the word, tradition of, notice the word there, elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? 
But Christ does not even give them that whenever you get to verse... Look at verse 8. This is Christ. Christ says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So these aren't elders. These guys that are inventing rules, inventing stuff. I'm not, he's not even going to call them elders at that point. He calls them men. These traditions come from men. They don't come from God. They come from men. So these guys, you know, obviously, Pharisees, scribes, accusing Christ as disciples. You guys aren't doing this. You guys need to do this. Christ says, what are you talking about? These are traditions of men. What do you mean we have to do these things? And now, here's the thing on this, okay? You might think that this is just as I thought. I mean, you read through it and you're like, yeah, I can see. I mean, yeah, that's a problem. You know what the big problem here is? The problem here is the advancement of the gospel. The scribes and the Pharisees are looking at it like this. Um, Think of it like this. What's their principle? Their principle is you have to be cleaner than the word of God requires. Why is that? Because if you're to be truly separate, truly set apart for God, you have to be clean. But not just clean, right? You've got to be extra clean. It starts out, hey, you've got to be clean. Now you've got to be extra clean. Now you've got to do this. And so what Christ is doing is Christ is looking at this and he's saying, listen, what does this, this imply when it comes to the Great Commission? What's this saying? Because for these Jews, they're saying this, salvation is by ethnic separation. That's what this is. Ethnic separation. I am not like the Gentiles. I am set apart from the Gentiles. I don't eat with Gentiles. Where does it say that in the Old Testament? Not to eat with Gentiles. It doesn't. I don't visit their homes. Where does it say that? It doesn't. I, don't, I, I try not to interact with them. Where does it say that? It doesn't. And so when Christ is here, Christ knows, hey, the gospel, in fact, going back to Abraham, when God goes to Abraham, he promises Abraham that you're going to be a blessing to the nations. How how is Abraham going to be a blessing to the nations? It tells us in Galatians 3, through the gospel. That's how Abraham's going to be a blessing to the nations. So that's not like something that's just New Testament, right? That's the, that is the mission of God from the very beginning to be a blessing to the nations through the advance of the gospel on earth so that it's not just, it starts with Israel, yes, but they're not the only people who can claim to be people of God. That's why you have like the children of Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham? According to Paul, anyone who has faith in Christ is a child of Abraham. But you can't tell that if you tell the Jews this, what's going to happen? Christ does tell the Jews this. They pick up rocks and they try to stone them. That's what happens. Salvation by ethnic cleansing alone or ethnic separation. Salvation is I am a Jew. I'm not like a Gentile. Thus, I'm right with God. So when Christ comes, I, I think this is why Christ is intentionally provoking them so often. Not just for the sake of provoking them, but because they they have become hindrances, stumbling blocks to the gospel. And if you remember in the New Testament, this is, this is, I mean, this takes a long time. Tradition is something that is very, very, very difficult to overcome. Especially when it reaches to the stage of idolatry. And it becomes so invasive that, think about this. You remember Paul, or Peter. Okay, Peter, who's the pillar of the church in Jerusalem goes to Galatia. And he's hanging out with the Gentiles. He's yucking it up. They're, ha- they're eating together. They're hanging out. They're having a great time. But then he hears that James and the guys are coming. Right? The Jews. And he's like, oh man. I, guys, I gotta go. I can't, hang- I can't do this anymore. And so he separates himself from the Gentiles. 
Well, Paul is there. Paul comes and he realizes what, what Peter is doing. And so what does he do? He calls Peter out. What he, this is not the gospel. That's not what the gospel is. Ephesians 2, it talks about this wall of separation. This separating wall, this dividing wall has been destroyed in the gospel. Christ is realizing this. One is on earth. And he's realizing that this tradition, these traditions of men have become a serious, serious, serious stumbling block to the gospel. So he's doing what he can and will do, ultimately, to disrupt things. To change the the pattern of things. Because it, it needs to be changed. Look what happens in verse 5 or verse 6. Now, this is where things are unique. Beforehand and, and after this too, we'll see Christ. He usually responds with questions. They question Him. He questions them back and they're stopped by the question and then they leave Him alone. Here they question Him, but look what He does. He comes in with a severe judgment passage from Isaiah. He says this in verse 6. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy, now check this out, of you hypocrites. Did Isaiah prophesy? You know, think of this. 500 years before Christ steps foot on earth, Isaiah is prophesying. Was that prophecy about the first century Jewish leaders? No. But Christ extrapolates, extrapolates that and says, look, that was about you guys. Isaiah prophesied about you, first century leaders in Israel. And and not only did he prophesy about you guys, look what he says though. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now, hypocrisy, you probably heard this. Um, A hypocrite in this language is, you you would... like an actor comes on stage, and in those days, you, an actor would, would have these different masks. And so he'd put on one mask, he'd go to the back, and he'd come back and put on another mask. where you get the idea of two-face. You're two-face. That's, exa- that's literally what it means. You, would, you, you have a bunch of faces in the back that you would just put on when, when, the, when the role requires it. That's where the word hypocrite comes from. But he's looking at this, and he's saying this, okay? If you, well, well let's, let's stop here first. In the context of Isaiah, I mentioned a little bit that this is a judgment passage. But in the context, when you go back and you read Isaiah 29, that's where this is coming from. This passage falls in the middle of a series of woe oracles against Israel's rulers. It says things like this. They think they're wise, but they're just obstinate children. They think that they're wise, but they're just staggering drunkards. They're under a deep sleep. And God is the one that puts them under that deep sleep. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a judgment of God upon them, upon the leaders. And so Christ is looking at this and he's saying, this is you guys. How is it them? Look what he says. This is a matter of lips versus heart. What you say with your mouth versus what you actually believe, what, you, what, what you're actually committed to. Lips versus heart. And it's something like this, okay? And, and man, there's so many ways to apply this. I was thinking, you know, in Clovis or in, in this whole area, in the Bible Belt, you look at it and everybody is so often, right? Everybody says they're Christian. Everybody says they're Christian. Everybody. But we look at it and you say, okay, yeah, but, but is your heart? You know, like you can say it with your mouth. That's easy. Anybody can say one thing with their mouth. I'm Christian. Anybody can go to church. You can do it. You can go through the motions, And that's what they're doing. They're going through the motions. 
They're doing what the law requires, but do they have any love for Christ? Do they have any love for God? Do they have any love? Think about it. Not just love. When we say, do you have any love for God? We mean that includes, that includes, do you, do you have any love for the mission of God? What's the mission of, what's the mission of God? To advance the gospel on earth. To save, to save people from every language, every tongue, every tribe. Do you, do you love that? For the Jews here, they say, no, we don't love. What are you talking about? Do we love that? No. Those are dirty Gentiles. Salvation is not for them. If they want to be saved, they need to come to us and we'll tell them that they've got to do everything we're doing. They've got to start washing their hands. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to start doing everything we say to do. Right? But that's not the mission of God. So there's confusion here. Do do they love the Messiah of God? Of course not. Here he is standing in their midst and they're saying, hey man, you're from the devil. So that's why Christ is saying, listen, you guys are are, are not, you you say that you're this, but you're not that. And, And theologically, just look at this, okay? What Christ is saying is that judgment, because he's using Isaiah 29, what happens in Isaiah 29? What happens to those leaders that Isaiah is talking about? Like I mentioned, Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, takes all of them. Most of them are killed, takes a lot of them into exile. That's where you get Daniel going into exile in that context, that, that same time period. Most of them are wiped off the face of the earth. That's, that's what happens. Isaiah warns them, says, you guys are like drunken, blind children, and yet you still persist in your ways. And so God comes in and wipes them all out. So Christ is saying, as it was then, so it will be with you. And that's exactly, I don't know if y'all have studied, I know some of you have, um, but it's something to definitely, definitely look into. And I don't, I don't think we ever really do it justice usually. But the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 to this, I mean, historians to this day will tell you that if you're talking about the massacre of a people within the span of a week or ten days, there is nothing. There's never been a thing that has been more horrific and brutal than the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. The Roman the Romans come in and they absolutely wipe the entire place up. Just just wipe them all out. The temples destroyed. The priestly class is destroyed. Why? Because when they destroy the temple, guess what? There's no more sacrifices. There's no more altar. There's no more genealogy. You don't know where you come from. You got to know where you come from if you're going to be a priest, right? There's no more of that. They come in and they absolutely decimate the place. Josephus talks about blood just running through the streets up to the horse's bridle. It's horrific. A lot of them starve to death. They're eating their children. They, they, they're, I mean, it's, 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 and why do the Christians, why are the Christians spared? And we'll see this. Because Christ told them, when you see this, flee. Get out of there. And so they remember that. And historically, lo and behold, what do they do? Oops. <laughs> Knock that thing right. This thing is more annoying than this, I have to admit. I'm ready to throw this thing. <laughs> what do they do? They flee. The Christians flee. They avoid the danger. They escape the danger. So here's what we have Christ doing, right? Christ is saying there's a day that is coming. That is a day of judgment, a day of darkness, a day, the day of the Lord. That's exactly what you find that happens. What? 40 years later. It's amazing. It really is. And so Christ is telling them this. Here's the thing though with this. Okay. Just to kind of point to some certain areas. This really is the idolatry of tradition, the idolatry of, of holiness. This is a good thing. I want to point out some, some areas in, in our own culture 
where tradition becomes more more important than God's word. Elevated to the place that it becomes it becomes the authority. All right. Now, here's what we have to look at first. Number one, the Pharisees, what they were doing in the beginning was not wrong. So they're looking at God's word and they're saying, how can we apply God's word to every area of life? That's good. That's what we should all do as Christians. We need to apply God's word. God's word does not tell us, as we've mentioned in here before, hey, how do I operate when I go to work? Doesn't specifically say, you know, Ian, here's your manual for when you go to work. Doesn't say that. But you, you, you can draw the principles of the teachings from it and then apply it to your life. That's, that's what we should all do. That's every time we read the Bible, we should be doing that. Certainly when you're preaching, that's what's going on. There's application, right? They, they, are, they are doing that. That's okay. That's good. However, what happens is, is they go beyond God's word and then they codify that and make it law. So in what areas do we do that? We meaning the church in general. Church, United States, evangelicalism. I'll give you a few. And, and I'm sure there's, there's thousands. But think about this, just to kind of give you an idea of what's going on. And how quickly, here's the point. Not just to like pick and beat up on, but it's to say how quickly this thing can creep up and all of a sudden it's in your own heart. Okay, number one. Let's look at just like certain church practices. The sinner's prayer. Right, The sinner's prayer is the idea that if you close your eyes, and you've heard it, Joel Osteen's sermons, at the very end of any of those sermons, it happens a lot in a lot of churches, they'll say something at the very end of the sermon, okay, hey, listen, if you want to receive Christ, close your eyes, boom, you close your eyes, okay, now say this prayer, you say the prayer, okay, open your eyes, you open your eyes, and what do you hear? If you said this prayer and you really mean it, you're saved. No, you're not, necessarily. <laughs> right? And here's the point. Is it bad to pray? Is it bad to call upon the name of Christ? No, that's not bad. That's not the problem. The problem is whenever you take something that's good, take something that's okay, and then all of a sudden now you're making it into something it's not. You see that? Because how many false converts are there out there who think they're saved? Because, and you hear it all the time, they said a prayer... And then they go and nothing changes. They live like hellions. They're clearly not saved. But you try to go and say, hey, you're not saved. They, they insist. I said the prayer. I said the prayer. That's tradition. That's not biblical. That's not from Scripture. That's tradition. Altar call is the, another, another thing. And all, the altar call. You know, or at the end of the service where you're like, hey. And so it's, this, it's the idea that I have to do this. Are altar calls bad? Uh, I don't... <laughs> They're not biblical, I would say, because you don't see anything like that in Scripture. But they're not bad per se, I guess. But the thing is, is to elevate it to the place of, well, I walked an aisle. Therefore, this. That's, that's the problem with that. You see that? Um, I've known churches that have split over whether or not you should have an American flag in the worship service. That's tradition. Is it wrong to have an American flag in the service? I don't think so. Some people say, Definitely. I say, well, I'm, I guess, more neutral on that. But here's the thing. If you get to the place where you're saying, we have to have this in service, that's a problem, right? Why? Because the the Bible, there's nowhere where it prescribes that. Show me where it prescribes that. You see, you see how, but you see how quickly this, it becomes inveterate, right? Now all of a sudden you're like, hey, the church splits over this? Um, let's look at politics, right? The whole idea that churches shouldn't speak on things that are political, 
In fact, our church is, is uh, in, in case you haven't heard, that we're under, um, we're, we've, we've had some kind of official complaint against us to take our 501c3 thing. And it's not from, I, I, I don't see that it could go through. In fact, we have a very good attorney who says we have your back no matter what. So, But here's the thing. The, I, if, when you look at their description for why, it's like this. Well, it's because, it's because they... They, um, they sponsored a sign that said there's a meeting at the library on Thursday at 445. And so we filed this official complaint to take their tax status away. And you're like, wait a minute. Okay, that's tradition. But here's the thing. That's not just for pagans. I think a lot of Christians buy that as well, right? So it's like, hey, you better not, you better not tell us what to do when it comes to politics. You better not speak on that topic. You got to be neutral. And there is clearly a problem when you go when that's all you talk about, right? When that's all it is. It's just politics, politics, politics. You know, voting Tuesday's an election. And so you'll get like, hey, we're going we're gonna to preach just on this. And then all these, okay, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if that's all it is, then there's a problem on that extreme. But there's another problem on the other extreme where you, the idea is, I, I'm never going to touch this. I'm never going to talk about it. I don't want to, you know, that's just not my area. It is the area. The church's area is to make sure that our state and our, our officials are operating in a way that is biblical. And if they're not, we need to address that. That's how it is, right? And so that's an area. I'll give you, I'll give you an area, another one. And this is kind of like in reverse in a sense. But, but think about the idea, think about the issue of homosexuality in our country right now. For, in, the, in the Christian world, okay? And I tell you this, by going out and talking to Christians, so professing Christians on a regular basis, 9 out of 10 Christians out there will say there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. I promise you, 9 out of 10, easy, in my experience. And you ask yourself, okay, well, why, why do they think this, right? They think this because it's become a tradition. It's become, it's become a teaching in the church that has been elevated to a place that supplants what God's Word actually says about it. You see that? They elevate it and they say, well, it's because I have a friend who's gay. I have a friend, I, my, my aunt, my, my daughter, my whatever. And because of that, they elevate this teaching and it becomes teaching that is more authoritative than what God's word actually says. Which, of course, forbids it and condemns it in you know, five or six different places in the New Testament. And, of course, the same goes with fornication and drinking and all these things. My point, though, is this. Even in the church, it's so easy to elevate teachings that are not biblical and then to, to view them as authoritative rather than saying, okay, let's go back to God's Word and see what God's Word says about it even if the culture disagrees with us, even if the church down the street disagrees. Our standard is God's Word. Same thing with um, you know, abortion is health care or women's rights or any of these things, right? These are, in the church, you have these views that are in, ingrained, codified. This is the official teaching of Jesus. No, it's not. That's the problem. It's not. So what do you do, right? Do you go along with the tradition of 2022 United States of America or do you go back to God's word? What Christ is doing with the Pharisees and scribes is he's saying, listen, you guys might have meant well. You know, when they say, hey, homosexuality is fine. Maybe a lot of churches mean well and they don't want to offend any of them. and They want them to come in. And so they say, hey, we're open and accepting of all people. And God is too. Ah, That's where the problem is right there, right? Because 
It's, it's, it's like the phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Same thing. It's not biblical. Where do you get that? That is a man-made tradition. That's what that is. In Psalm 5, 5, it says God hates evildoers. And when you lessen that, you lessen the gospel. Why? Because the gospel becomes more profound the more you realize that I was a sinner under the curse of God, under the wrath of God, and yet in His mercy, He came and saved me. Whereas if I'm like, hey, you know, I mean, God loved me even though... And, and yes, there is a sense in which, in, in general, yes, He loves you. But He loves you now because you're in Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, the Bible says the wrath of God is upon you. See the difference? And this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave us His, His only begotten Son, sent Christ to earth to be a propitiation for our sins. All of these things, in a sense, are, are, are ways... You, people have been studying church history, right? In the church history class. What do you, you see this in church history. How quickly things that are good... Think of, take the martyrs. The martyrs, they give their life in heroic and in noble ways. And people want to honor them and honor their death. And so what do they do? They say, hey, it's the year anniversary of Bob's death or Anna's death or whoever's death. And they, they died faithfully to the Lord. So a year anniversary comes around. They say, hey... We want to do something extra special this year for Bob or for Anna. And, you know, Kirk or whoever, they were, they, hey, I got Bob's shoe. You got Bob's shoe? Right? Wow. Bring Bob's shoe, and I think it's, you know, it's going to, it's going to rejuvenate us. It's going to give us power before you know you have relics. Or we can, you know, Bob, Bob is, he died heroically. You know he's close to the throne. Let's pray to, let's ask Bob if he'll go and pray to Jesus. Before you know it, that's what you have, right? This the sign of the cross. All these things, these are traditions. They're not biblical. My point though is this. These things can start out good, right? They, they start out, they mean well, but over time, before you know it, before you know it, really. I mean, that's the key word there. Without realizing it, you've made traditions more authoritative than God's Word. And going back to my example with, with, with you know, these, these ideas of um, evolution is another one. You're like, well, I mean, evolution is a, it's been around for 100 years, 120 years. And I promise you, it's not going to last very much longer because scientists themselves who claim to be evolutionists are realizing there's massive problems with our theory of evolution. But what do you have in Christian circles? Well, you know, I mean, these guys say this. So let's elevate that and make it more authoritative than God's Word. Right? Same thing. It's so easy to do. Here's the thing for application. God's Word is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. Notice we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. Confessions are good. I would say confessions are absolutely necessary things because every church has a confession. Whether or not they want to admit it, every church believes something about the Bible. That's all the conf- a confession is only, hey, this is what we believe about the Bible. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. But in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it tells you that the Word of God is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Meaning, don't use this confession to to be more authoritative. Don't see it as more authoritative than God's Word. And in fact, there have been revisions since the confession was written because they realized, hey, these guys were wrong here. Plain and simple. Mostly right. But here's the thing. 
They're right. Why? Because it corresponds to Scripture. That's why that thing is filled with Scriptures. But here's the, here's the thing, right? You, you, it is a good thing to look at Scripture, to apply Scripture to our life. That's how we have to operate. But the idea, I'll give you another one. Like the, the, you, the KJV is the only correct interpretation. You can't wear makeup. You can't, all these weird things that creep in, right? Once that starts to happen, Lord's Supper, you, you can only use grape juice. Excuse me, right? What is that? What do you mean you can only use grape juice? What does Christ say to use, right? So it's all these different things that creep in into the church, into our own hearts, that Christ, when He, when he condemns them, we have to examine our own selves to find out, to examine, hey, are there, are there areas in my own heart that I'm looking at, that I'm, that I'm clinging to, that are not biblical, that don't correspond to God's Word? Um, there's a difference between regular principle of worship and will worship. If you ever hear the word will worship, will worship is I'm going to worship in a way that God does not prescribe. I'm going to live in a way that God does not prescribe. What? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. And we're going to end with this because here's what the problem is. Ultimately, all this boils down to what? I want to please God in a way that God does not require or prescribe. It's a good, noble ambition. I want to please God, but it comes with a huge error in a way that God does not prescribe. Why are they doing this? Because they misunderstand what holiness is. That's the problem with all of this. The root is the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't comprehend what it means to be holy in the sight of God. And so if you look at 1 Peter... Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But look what it says. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's the same principle you have in the Old Testament. Here's the thing about holiness. Holiness is not something that you go out and achieve for yourself. You can't do it. The Pharisees and scribes thought you can. You can't do it. So how do we how do we how do we have how do we become holy people? Holiness is a positional category. You know the word sanctification? That's the same word for holiness. Sanctification is is both progressive, ongoing, but it's also positional. It happens at the time that you're justified, that you're made right with God, you're set apart, you're holy in the eyes of God. There's nothing you can do to make it happen, and there's nothing you can do to lose that if you're truly in Christ. In other words, me walking and talking to a Gentile or talking to a Muslim or talking to a, a papist, it doesn't make me unclean. Doesn't And praise God, why is that so good? Because that means that as we go out and as we interact with, with people who are not in Christ, guess what happens? They get converted. They come in. We're, in fact, it's a mandate, right? It's a mandate. Go to go and go into all the world. Go to your places of work. Go to your neighborhoods. Go to your friends. Go to your family. They're not, they're not in Christ. The beauty of this is that that's okay in the sense of it's okay for you. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to, you don't have to come back and take a shower, take a bath. You don't have to do that. 
That's the beauty of this, this idea of holiness. You know when Paul writes to the Ephesians and he calls them saints? To the saints in Ephesus? To the saints in Corinth? To the saints? That's the word for holy. The holy ones. And you can say the same about every one of you. You're a holy one. You're part of a you're 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 part of the like the Apostles' Creed says, you're part of the holy apostolic church. And so if you get that right, then when it comes to all these other things, I don't think there will be that the issue won't be as grave or as or as tempting. Because you'll realize that look, salvation is not by ethnicity. It's not by whether or not I wear makeup. It's not by whether or not there's a flag in the church. Whether Whatever it is. How am I made holy? I turn to Christ. I look to Christ. Christ who knew no sin became sin on my behalf so that I in Christ might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that God sees us as righteous today if you're in Christ. That's all it is. You look to Christ. And then having looked to Christ, like Peter says, he goes on to say, we don't have time to read it, but he goes on to say, in light of the fact that you are holy, live that way, right? Live as though you're holy. Not so that you can become holy, but because you already are holy. That's the huge difference. The Pharisees and scribes think because Christ and His disciples are not doing this, there's no way they can be holy. And Christ is saying, you've got it backwards, man. It's completely upside down. You can't, you are not holy because you're not coming to the one who can make you holy. Because you're not coming to the one who can make you holy, you can do all the outward actions in the world, but your hearts are still not right. That's the problem. And so let's pray, and then as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we have something in line with that. Oh God, we thank you that Christ has come, and and Lord, there are so many areas, so many potentials, for erring in this way. And Lord, there's no doubt, oh God, as blind as we are by nature and, and with the old man still clinging so ferociously, Lord, we know that there are so many things that we, that we hold to that, that are merely tradition. And Lord, we pray you would forgive us for elevating these things to the same, to the same standard as your word. Lord, give us grace to see these things, to turn from these things. Lord, only you can open our eyes to these blind areas, these blind spots, Lord. But we thank you. We thank you that we're not hopeless in this. We know that you do work this, this, this grace in us, this process of sanctification by opening our eyes. Lord, forgive us for any legalism in our life. Lord, forgive us for, for, for being legalistic about not being legalistic so often. Lord, give us grace to reform back to your word, to reform to the scriptures. We thank you for the scriptures, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that Christ sets things straight. And we thank you, Lord, that the gospel goes forth to the nations, that the gospel goes forth to the people we interact with, Lord. And we pray for them. We pray that you would take people who are unclean today, not by ethnicity, not by social status. They're unclean because they're not in Christ. Lord, save them. Make them clean. Make them holy. You alone can do it, O Lord, but use us. We know that you use means, so use us today, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.